0: Welcome back. It's great to have your company again. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top stories in regulatory affairs from around the globe with our team of specialised reporters. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And we have another action-packed program for you today. In just over 10 minutes from now, we'll be crossing to our offices in South Korea to catch up with one of our Seoul-based correspondents. We'll be discussing the new lease of life of the CBPR, so that's CB for border PR, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum's regional privacy mechanism. It has long been neglected and ignored, but there's now evidence to suggest that the times might be a-changing. Wu yong Lee will brief us on that very soon. First up, though, the spectacular court decision in the EU overturning a €1 billion fine that had been levelled against US chipmaker Qualcomm as part of what now appears to be a legally fraught antitrust enforcement decision. It's not the first time that we've mentioned this case, and I suspect it won't be the last. Nevertheless, the EU court's decision on Wednesday was a watershed moment, and we're recording this podcast on the Thursday, so Uh, No doubt the significance is still sinking in. Lewis Crofts is Emlex's editor-in-chief. He has dedicated the best years of his life to making sense of this case, and he joins me now from Brussels. So, uh, Lewis, how big a victory is this for Qualcomm?
1: Uh, This is huge, James. It it doesn't really happen, to be honest. There are big companies like Google and Microsoft who've had a pop in the uh, EU courts to try to overturn their... Um, multi-million dollar, billion dollar fines, and they failed. Uh, This happens very rarely. It's very difficult uh, to take on a monopoly abuse fine. And the European Commission's got a pretty good record of defending them. And so anyone who manages to pull this off, um, you know, it's hats off to them.
0: Okay, so before getting into the specifics of the EU court's findings, just remind us quickly of the background of this case. What were the rebates and financial incentives for selling and marketing chipsets, And uh, just why did the European Commission object to those?
1: So the European Commission got itself uh, in the middle of a fight between Qualcomm and Apple, and there's really uh, no love lost between the chip maker and the maker of the iPhones. And the iPhone maker, iPad maker, was looking for a chip uh, to roll out its, I think this is 2014-15 for iPads. And then also for some iPhones as well, and everyone wants to get in the iPhone, uh, and so um, chip makers you know, give incentives to Apple, saying, you know, if you uh, if you take our chips, we'll give you a, we'll give you a rebate. In this instance, it was you know uh, billions of billions of dollars, and so uh, Qualcomm wanted to get in uh, and keep out others such as Intel, and so the Commission thought that this uh, payment towards Apple was effectively crimping Apple's choice Apple was uh, you know uh, incentivized to stick with Qualcomm and not look elsewhere and it had dug up um, some communications which said that Apple was considering going to Intel but didn't because of the money it was getting from from Qualcomm now taking on these kinds of cases is tricky it's always been tricky and it will remain tricky after this case why because rebates generally you know can be good everyone likes some money back everyone likes a discount. But in some instances, a rebate can be large enough, it can be targeted enough to a particular part of the market. You know, if you get the brand new product that's coming on the market or Apple is being a key customer, if you can manage to target your rebate correctly, you can effectively, you know, you could effectively under EU law be um, abusing your market power and and stopping customers moving. But the commission lost that case yesterday.
0: OK, so let's talk about that decision uh, yesterday in the court challenge. What were the problems and the weaknesses in the EU's case?
1: So uh, essentially, there are there are three uh, big slaps the Commission got yesterday. Uh, and it is a, a resounding victory for Qualcomm. You know, sometimes on these cases, you, you get a little something, you lose a little something. There are a few dents here or there, but, you know, the general court, which is the EU's lower tier court, this judgment can be appealed to the higher court, the Court of Justice, and, and probably will be. Essentially, the court wanted to take this decision down, the 2018 decision with a 1 billion euro fine attached to it. And its, its three problems were as follows. The first, was, um, well, the first two were about procedures. One, generally, there were some meetings that took place between the European Commission and other companies. Uh, and those meetings were not uh, sufficiently recorded and were disclosed to Qualcomm. Qualcomm complained, we don't know what people are saying about us and, and you're not sharing this information with us, so how can we defend ourselves? And the court sided with, uh, with Qualcomm on that. The second one was um, the commission originally set out a case which was based on two markets, two kinds of chip markets. It narrowed that case down to one market and the court said Qualcomm should have been given a chance to refine its 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 response, its rebuttal uh, based on the change in the European Commission's case. So again, it's a two. Those two first two points are rights of defence issues, and the third point is a substantive one on actually the rebates themselves. Could they, did they actually um, affect Apple's incentives? And this is a this is a really big legal point that's been litigated a lot over the years, and. They said, the court said, the European Commission needed to take all of the factors into consideration, all of the circumstances of the market. And there was one really big fact, which the court said the Commission didn't properly account for. And that was that Qualcomm was the only company that could make a chip to the exacting technical standards that Apple needed. It was the only one out there. Intel's chip wouldn't have been as good, wouldn't have done all the, you know, jazzy things on your iPad. And therefore you know, was Apple's choice really affected if it hadn't a choice because Qualcomm was the only one that could
0: make the chip. Now, you've described this obviously as a, a significant setback for the European Commission. To what extent will this decision reverberate in other big tech cases?
1: It's a good question because, you know, big tech is um, on everyone's lips, has been for many years. Uh, Qualcomm is not part of the usual pantheon uh, of Google or, you know, Meta, uh amazon uh, microsoft and so forth and and this kind of case about rebates and so forth is not the kind of case that you find with those other big platforms really so so while it is a big tech case it doesn't really fit with 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 the other ones and it's probably wrong to draw too many conclusions from it but it's still a huge loss on the use of an instrument so uh, european union's law to tackle uh dominant companies That is supposed to be one of the sharpest tools there. It will make it more difficult for the commission generally, and maybe the commission will be more wary about taking on cases like this. I think there are two broad repercussions. The first is, you know, would the commission ever try something like this again? It's lost a case on these rebates for Qualcomm. Earlier this year, it lost a case uh, for Intel's rebates, um, also related to chips and computers. And, you know, if you were in the political ranks of the commission, do you think, is this the kind of stuff that we, sh- we should be doing? Uh, is, are the courts sending us a message here? Should we should we be pursuing stuff that's easier to get or, or a clearer, nailed on case rather than pursuing these kinds of tricky things? And the second is procedurally. As I said, there's all, there are all these um, grievances about um, notes of meetings being shared and um, changes in the economic model being given and so forth. You know. EU competition law procedures are already criticised for being too long. Why are they too long? Because you have to go back and forth with companies in order to give them the full rights to defend themselves because they could end up getting fined a billion, two billion, three billion, four billion. And so it's right that they are exacting standards for, for, for procedures. You have to respect them. But the court, what the courts do is, it's saying, uh, here are some problems. It identified half a dozen meetings that weren't done properly. It identified this um, change in the in the in the um, markets under scrutiny. If the commission gets nervy now and has to document everything, add another meeting in, give another chance to a company to respond, then it could be that this is a more of an administrative burden for the Commission and maybe cases take longer.
0: Lewis, it's always difficult to talk about a political fallout uh, in the context of the European Union. In particular, the European Commission isn't politicised in, in that way. But might there be, in fact, a political fallout as a result of all of this? It's a good question because, you know, um, there have
1: been a few losses now in in the EU courts for this commissioner, um, Executive Vice President Lesteyer. She lost a big Apple case, which is a flagship case. Uh, the Intel case, as I said earlier, which which wasn't really her case. Um, and, and the Qualcomm case and, and other, you know, bits and bobs, uh, particularly a lot in state aid. Uh, there's no one calling for resignations. It doesn't really work that way. EU law, you know, EU law tends to be this is a... dispassionate or they'd like to believe this is a dispassionate regulator going about their um, statutory duties and so it doesn't really work that way but there'll certainly be calls for the commission to up its game Uh, it treated uh, Corcom unfairly the the judgment makes pretty ugly reading unfortunately it's uh, shorn of any names and details because they've all been suppressed through uh, confidentiality redactions and the hearing itself last year, which I went to was part of that was in camera to suppress the names of who, who were all these meetings with and when did they take place and so forth. So it's sort of difficult to point fingers, but there's there's a very vocal band of, of companies and their lawyers who think that the commission, the standard of their work is um, not up to it. If they're going to go ahead and impose billion dollar fines, then its work needs to be. Um, meet a certain standard. And this kind of uh, outcome will add fuel to that fire.
0: And Lewis, you first reported on this, what was it, eight eight years ago. Um, I mean, can this case go any further? How many more years of this do we have to endure? Oh, James, possibly about another 15. Um, if this goes
1: the way of the last <laughs> rebates case, which is the Intel one, which I previously mentioned, that started in the year 2000, and it's still going in 2022. You know, the way that these things work is that they get into the courts. Well, they already take ages to prosecute for all the reasons I've suggested. It's a, it's a difficult case to bring. And then when they enter the court system, they can yo-yo up and down the courts for, for, for many years, which Intel has, Intel has done. It's had three separate judgments. So, um, you know. I'm not sure that the Intel case is a poster child for um, the application of European law, and maybe people will be trying to avoid that this time around. But, you know, if there's an appeal, we're at least another two years' worth of this, and, you know, and and who knows.
0: Okay, Lewis, let's uh, keep on talking over the next two to 15 years. Uh, It's been great fun uh, today, and I'll catch you again very soon. Thanks, James. Lewis Crofts, MNex's Editor-in-Chief, and his analysis of Qualcomm's court success is ready for you to read. You can find it at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very latest news and analysis from our team of reporters. Thank you so much for staying with us today. And in just a moment, we'll be heading to South Korea to ask this one very simple question. Is the CBPR getting its mojo back? Now, if you haven't done so already, let me urge you to subscribe to the MLEX podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Where possible, please leave a review because it helps others make their way to the podcast. Now, MLEX readers would certainly be familiar with the CBPR. That's a cross-border privacy rules system which was introduced by APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, around 10 years ago. It's a government-backed data privacy certification mechanism that companies can join to demonstrate compliance with internationally recognised data privacy safeguards. The only problem until now has been that the take-up on the part of companies hasn't been great, but now things appear to be changing. Woo Yong Lee is an MX reporter. She's based in Seoul, and I'm glad to say that she joins us right now. So, uh, Wu Yong, uh, just remind me firstly how all of this works. What's in it for companies that sign up?
2: Yes, businesses which have obtained the CBPR certification are considered having uh, right safeguarding measures for data protection, and businesses certified with the CBPR can transfer and exchange personal information more freely across the borders. Um, South Korea is a member of the APAC and joined the CBpr uh, system in two thousand and seventeen but it was only recent that the country adopted the system and began to promote it to local businesses um, so the businesses that expressed their interest, interests in the system are tech companies that are offering services in um, major places in Asia-Pacific regions such as Japan and Singapore. Um, the companies I spoke to uh, say they think that CBPR is a must-have privacy certification that will enhance their business prospects in Asia.
0: Okay, so this mechanism was established 10 years ago, so it has been up and running for quite a while now. Uh, despite that, though, it hasn't really been used that much in the Asia-Pacific region. Why is that?
2: Yes, so it dates back to a decade ago since the system was created uh, under the APAC system. But then obviously the U.S. played a leading role in devising the system. So in the US alone, a total of 39 companies have been certified with the CBPR, including Apple, IBM, and Cisco systems. But elsewhere, it has not been so successful. And it has been rather slow in other countries. So, for example, Mexico and Canada don't have any businesses certified with the CBPR, although it has been nine years for Mexico and seven years for Canada since they joined the system. Um, But however, Japan and Singapore have a few businesses, uh, three in Japan and six in Singapore that joined the CBPR. And it's because the country recognizes the CBPR as a proper Uh, cross-border data transfer mechanism under their privacy law. But elsewhere, the CBPR remains as a voluntary system and entirely up to the companies to apply for this.
0: All right. Now, uh, things on this front have been changing recently, and I suppose that's the, the thrust of the analysis that you wrote. Could you tell me something about that evolving landscape?
2: So the low participation means that the system needs to change. So recently, uh, the member countries decided to take out the APEC title from the APEC CBPR to make the system more universal. So in April, the U.S. and the current members of the CBPR system, like uh, Japan, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, they gathered in Hawaii to announce what's called global CBPR, Uh, And here, uh, we've been told that non-APEC members uh, like UK, Brazil and Chile also participated.
0: Okay, so will this new global CBPR, which uh, was discussed in Hawaii, is it likely to lead to more businesses participating in the mechanism?
2: We don't know how other parts of the world will react to this global CBPR, but uh, at least here in South Korea tech companies are definitely interested in getting the CBPR certification uh, to help their businesses grow in Asia. Uh, NCSoft, for example, which offers game services in uh, about 50 countries globally, says that CBPR is a nice tool they can use to prove that the company cares about consumers' privacy and offers a high level of data protection to their customers, uh, especially those in Japan and Singapore. Uh, another company called Yanolja is a South Korean startup that offers online travel booking services. They say that it will Uh, definitely apply for the certification scheme too, because it runs regional offices in Singapore and Vietnam. So I think the CBPR has potential to be used widely in Asian market because it can be a useful benchmark for businesses wanting to prove the level of privacy they can offer to Asian customers.
0: All right, so it sounds like there are still some vital signs there from the CBPR, which is uh, no doubt good news for the region. Wu Yong, thank you so much for covering this story. It's always a pleasure catching up.
2: Thank you, James.
0: Woo Yong Lee is an Mlex reporter based in our Seoul offices. She covers antitrust, privacy and data security. And her great piece of analysis on the issue of the CBPR is very much online at the moment and you'd be crazy to miss it. You can find it at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight all one word.com. Just click on the News Hub tab the very best reporting and analysis from the MLEX team, as well as an archive of our weekly podcasts. Now, sadly, this is where we have to leave it for this week. We will, however, be back with you in a week's time with the very latest from MLEX's team of journalists around the world. My name is James Paniki, and from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now.